I am so, so glad to be back at Plum Creek Chapel and uh, really grateful for the opportunity that uh, you all give me to do a little speaking now and then. And I uh, want to welcome you to our midweek service tonight as we continue our study of how to read and understand the Bible. And I want to also welcome those that may be live streaming. Uh, but I want to start tonight by just giving a quick uh, update on a couple of announcements. I don't want to tarry too long here because I want to dive right into the material uh, for tonight. But I do want to remind everyone that if you've not seen the series, What in the World is Going On? It's available. It's free. You can watch it anytime, the videos or the podcasts. Um, I told the uh, pastors at the pastors conference in Duluth, it's about 110 or 15 pastors and what many of them brought their wives. And after I spoke on uh, my message there was called Beware of False Prophets from 2 Peter 2 at the end of it. I told them about this series that we had just finished and I said, if you're not talking about this stuff from the pulpit, you're derelict in your duty. And um, so I got a few pushbacks from that, but that's okay. I love them. Um, but uh, anyway, so remind you about that. Keep spreading the word. I have no intention of monetizing that anytime soon. We're going to leave it out there. It's too important of information to, uh, to convert to DVD and stuff just yet. So uh, notbyworks.org under the videos menu, what in the world is going on? All eight videos are there. And then just a quick report. I mentioned being in Duluth uh, last week. This is a annual conference, uh, one of my uh, favorite conferences uh, that I've had the privilege of being a part of. Uh, first spoke there nine or ten years ago, spoke six or seven years in a row, and then I missed the last three for various reasons. So it was really, really exciting to kind of be back there, see people I haven't seen for a few years. Um, and they have two conferences every year, always in October, back to back. The first is the Pastors Conference, and then it ends on Thursday morning, and then that night they kick off the big conference, which is open to anybody. And um, so uh, at the pastor's conference, I did Beware of False Prophets. And um, I know, uh, where's Barb? So, some, some people may have been exposed to certain pastors that I mentioned in passing uh, that is news to you, but that's okay. Don't take my word for anything I ever say, but I hope it drives you to the word and drives you to be good, good Bereans and good, uh, all, not you, Barb. You're already a good Berean, but I mean all, all, uh, all b b believers as we study the word. But then uh, on uh, Friday night at the Believers Conference, uh, they went through the book of Revelation. So every keynote speaker was given a section of Revelation. Mine was Revelation 14 to 16. I called it One Second Before the Second Coming. And both of those videos are up and available. I encourage you to watch them. Um, that, that one there that you see on the screen was pretty heavy. You know, it's pretty serious stuff leading us up to right at the moment of Armageddon when Christ comes back. So that's why I called it One Second Before the Second Coming. And, um, you know, for anyone who watches that that's not a believer and risks being here when all of that's unfolding on the earth you know it's a, a pretty sobering reality and so I certainly challenged people to place their faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation uh, so yeah I encourage you to watch those and then uh, I don't have it on the screen but I did um, uh, do the my usual Tuesday morning appearance on the Christian Underground News Network podcast and this Tuesday which was yesterday uh, the topic was, What is the New Covenant? So that's available as a podcast. It's not a video, but a podcast. And I uh, encourage you to check that out. Uh, we had a great discussion with those folks uh, yesterday. So with that, let's dive in. Uh, how to read and understand the Bible. And so we're talking about kind of sitting down with a Bible in front of you, opening the Bible and being able to read it and understand it. And as we're going to see, ultimately apply it. Because knowledge just puffs up. It's not just about knowing the Word. It's about knowing and doing the Word, applying it to your life. But I want to start tonight by way of sort of an exercise or uh, introduction. And I'll probably, thinking about doing this each week at the beginning of our sessions. And that is, I want to put a verse on the screen and I want us to talk about it. It's typically going to be verses that you've heard of, you may be very familiar with. And uh, by the way, this is not one of those uh, exercises where I'm seeking a gotcha moment or trying to embarrass anybody or whatever. I just want to illustrate how often we may misunderstand a, a very well-known passage of Scripture. So uh, please don't 
be afraid to chime in as we talk about different verses. Uh, I can tell you that I, every week, almost, as I'm studying the Word, I come across a passage that as I'm digging a little deeper, I discover I've never really understood it correctly until now. So it's, study is a lifelong process. I'm, we're going to talk about that. But you're familiar with Isaiah's famous words here in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. Uh, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So somebody tell me how you've... I'll, I'll make it easier for you so you don't have to worry about, oh no, I got it wrong. How have you heard this verse applied? Uh, most likely in your own mind, but let's assume you heard it from somebody else. How have you heard this verse applied? What do you think it means as you read those two verses, actually, from Isaiah 55? My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways... My ways. What do you think? Okay. So I want to comment uh, for people on the video that may watch this later or that are live streaming now. I realize that questions and comments from the audience are not picked up on the mic, so bear with us, and I will try to repeat them always. I know that's not the most ideal way to do it, but that's uh, the best we can do. So there will be moments when people are, when we're dialoguing with someone from uh, the room where you're going to hear just muffled sounds in the background, but hang with us, I'll repeat the question. So uh, you said that um, in your mind, you know, as you, as you see this verse, it's that God's sovereign. We may not always understand His ways. When things don't make sense to us, we have to just trust that He knows what He's doing, right? Okay, somebody else. Yeah. Don't even think about uh, trying to understand why he's uh, from you're speaking as God. Yeah. <laughs> how 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 long have you had this God complex, Paul? <laughs> no, so he said <laughs> he said don't he, he he was taking on the voice of God who is the one speaking here by the way, so very appropriate. <laughs> he does that all the time, don't you say? He said God, God, he would summarize this as God saying, don't even think about, and then I forgot after that, sorry. <laughs> don't even think about trying to understand my ways because they're way higher than your ways. Okay, good. All right, anybody else? Okay, so you're you're bringing in the idea of revelatory information that maybe God knows something, but He's He might reveal it to us that we might not otherwise know. Okay, good. Anyone else? Yes. Well, just the idea that the apostles walked with Jesus for three years, but they often didn't seem to understand what was going on. Yeah. So Gary said the apostles walked with Jesus for three years, and they often didn't understand. Uh, what you know he was saying. You know, I've got kids that have been with us for 18 years, and they never understood anything I said. But um, okay, excellent. So here's my here's what I want to point. This you're all making great points and and actually helping to illustrate what why we need to study how to study the Bible. Everything you're saying is absolutely theologically accurate, and it's something that we can demonstrate that those principles are true from God's word. But that has absolutely nothing to do with what God is saying in Isaiah 55. And we know that because of the concentric circles of context. That the smaller the passage being studied, the greater the chance of error. So obviously I gave you one passage, and if you'd have been really like looking to get you know kudos from the teacher, you'd have said, well, I don't know. I need to look at the context a little further before I look at that one verse ripped out of context and tell you what it means. Uh, but of course, I didn't give you that option. We were just sort of asking you to, to hazard uh, an opinion as to what that verse means. But um, we're going to come back and do that in a second. But I want to illustrate an important principle of how to read and understand the Bible that we will come back to uh, in more detail as we get into the nuts and bolts of this down the road. We're going to give you a lot of nuts and bolts on practical, clear methodology for how to handle different portions of Scripture, whether it's Old Testament narrative, prophecy, Psalms, you know, Gospels, you name it. Uh, but a, a key principle 
that I want to illustrate is, is what we call the concentric circles of context. And that is the smaller the passage being studied, the greater the chance of error. So as you're studying, you start out with focusing on key words that, that jump off the page. Uh, then you look at the entire sentence and make sure you understand what the subject is, what the predicate is, what the command is, if there is one. Then, of course, you understand that sentence in light of the whole paragraph. And then you look at the entire book uh, and see how that paragraph fits within the context of the author's writing. And then you can compare that teaching to the author's other writings. So, for example, if you read something in 1 Corinthians uh, that seems to contradict something Paul wrote in Galatians, you, you need to compare Scripture with Scripture. Um, and then you expand it out to the entire Testament, say what does the New Testament teach, and then ultimately the whole Bible. So, obviously, we start with a verse such as Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, but we need to look at the overall context. Now, for the sake of time, and also because we really don't have to go that far to get a very clear understanding of what uh, God was saying to the children of Israel in the 8th century B.C., uh, we only have to go one verse uh, prior, we're just going to look at one verse, verse 7. Look at what God says right before that. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so that he can have mercy on him and to our God so he will abundantly pardon him. God was rebuking the children of Israel for their thoughts and behaviors. He says for, and again for in the next verse is a connecting word. Whenever you see the word for, you ought to automatically look back before it. He says because your thoughts are not my thoughts. You're thinking things that are evil. You're thinking things that are not godly, that are not okay, that are not moral. And furthermore, your ways are not my ways. Your behavior is not good. That's essentially what he's saying here. Remember, see the, the reference to way and thoughts? Forsake your way, forsake your thoughts. Why? Because they're not good. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. You're thinking things you shouldn't. Your ways are not my ways. You're doing things you shouldn't. Okay. In fact, it's, and then he uses a metaphor here. As the heavens are higher than the earth, in fact, my ways are that much higher than yours. That's how far you've departed from me in your behavior. If you go on and read the whole chapter, it's a scathing rebuke of their behavior and their, where they're at with their God. So, obviously, it kind of sounds like a theological principle. His thoughts are much deeper and, and higher than ours, and, and His ways, he, he knows what He's doing when we don't. That, that's all true, but that, we don't get that from here. We don't get that from here. So, uh, again, the problem with uh, not looking at the context is, can, is a matter of a degree of a problem. You know, in, in the worst case scenario, you end up taking away a meaning that is absolutely not only foreign to that context, but foreign to Scripture a false teaching. In this case, it could fall under the category of no harm, no foul, because the principles that we were talking about are clearly biblical principles, right? But then what you're dealing with is you're missing out on the truth that God had for us when He inspired this part of Scripture, when the quill hit the sheepskin, by misapplying it, misidentifying it, missummarizing it, we miss out on the actual truth. So, but just to, to help you rest easy so you don't go home thinking, oh, I, my whole worldview is shattered. Let me give you some verses that do validate the very things that you were saying. So look at Romans chapter 11, which is my favorite place to go when I'm struggling with God's sovereignty, not able to figure things out, wondering why we're going through this, what, you know, what's going on. And this is where we have direct teaching from an epistle, you know, epistolary literature, we call it, meaning the letters of the New Testament, teach doctrine directly. They're, they're just spot on doctrine. Now, they too have a context and they, you have to practice the same rules of hermeneutics, but it's much easier to derive doctrine from the epistles than it is, say, from historical narratives and things like that. But we'll get to that as we get down the road. But look at the end of Romans chapter 11. So the context here 
is, uh, and by the way, if you, uh, you know, come to church here or you listen to much of my teaching, you'll notice that I do very intentionally and regularly, whenever I'm quoting a verse, try to give you at least a sentence or two of the context. Because that's just the way I've learned and that's what I'm inclined to do as I read the Bible myself. Is I'll look at a verse, but before I really apply it to the point I'm making, I want to see where it fits in the overall picture. So, so, uh, so true to form, here, here in Romans uh, chapter 11, the big picture is in chapters 9 through 11. He's talking about the nation of Israel and what God's plan is for Israel and how God had forsaken Israel temporarily because they rejected the Messiah. They crowned Him with thorns instead of as king. And then he goes on to say, but their rejection is not total. It's not final. He has a future for national Israel. The deliverer is going to come out of Zion. And throughout this argument of chapters 9 through 11, People may wonder, you know, how is that fair? How come God chose Jacob and not Esau? And how come God does this and not that? And so he sort of summarizes after this whole three-chapter section of his letter, almost in self-reflective amazement and praise for God, with these words at the end in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments, and his ways past finding out. And then he quotes from, indeed, Isaiah, but not chapter 55, chapter 40, and verse 13, for who, know, who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. So absolutely everything, the comments that uh, you know some of you made, uh, very biblically astute, very biblically accurate. But that's not what's going on in Isaiah 55. The thoughts and ways that he's talking there, uh, talking about there are evil thoughts and evil ways that did not conform to the holiness of God. They were disparate. Okay? So we'll do this each week and we'll come back to uh, you know, different p- popular passages. Some of them I'm sure you'll you, uh, have talked about before or thought about before we could think of passages like jeremiah 29 11 2 chronicles 7 14 um you know uh, matthew 18 uh and the two or three witnesses those kinds of things but um hopefully next wednesday when we kick kick off with an with an exercise like this i i, I would not be surprised if as i put the verse on the screen i hear i hear this down in the audience, people looking quickly to look it up and look at the context. And amen for that. That's what we should do. We should look at the context. So to not do that is to ignore the concentric circles of context. It's to do what I call bumper sticker theology uh, or poster theology. Uh, And again, most of the time, especially among good, solid Bible-believing Christians who value the Word of God, when we do make those mistakes, it's a no harm, no foul sort of thing, you know. Uh, like Jeremiah 29, 11. Anybody know what that says? We'll just touch on that briefly. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. So you'll often see that, you know, people quoting it as applying to individual human beings, that God has a plan for your life. Does God have a plan for individual lives? You're afraid to answer now. Yeah, He does. He does, uh, absolutely. But Jeremiah 29, 11 is not saying that at all. And that's a simple one because you just look at the pronouns. Who is you? I know the plans I have for you. You is a pronoun. Look at the con- It's Israel. And Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, is talking about Israel after the Babylonian exile, after the destruction of Jerusalem, or in the context of the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And, and he's reminding them that God has not forsaken you. Don't despair. I know it looks bleak, but I have a future for you, and you're going to get the kingdom that you deserve. The temple's going to be rebuilt, and the king's going to sit on the throne. So that's my promise and my covenant to you. In fact, he goes on to say in that same passage, uh, chapter 31, that as long as you see sun, moon, and stars in the sky, you know my covenant's still with you. I haven't forsaken you. So again, context, context, context is critical. Um, But often it's an example of... uh, maybe having the right biblical principle, but the wrong proof text. Make sense? Okay. So last week, just to review, we talked about how any belief system is only as good as the foundation upon which it rests. And we went through this chart describing five categories of invalid uh, influences on our uh, belief system. 
and, uh, and talked about how in and of themselves any one of those things you see there in those first five columns uh, can be positive and helpful influences to the extent that they comport with the truth of God's Word. In other words, if a parent is training up their children based on biblical principles, then God uses parents, and He should. The Bible talks about that. Pastors, if a pastor is true to the biblical word and teaching people you know, truths from God's word accurately, then the God uses pastors. We know that's a biblical office in the New Testament church. Same thing with friends. Friends can be a very positive influence, or they can be a negative influence, like in Job's case. right? Um, so all of these things... Well, the point of that, of that discussion last week was just to show that in and of themselves, they're not the ultimate arbiter of truth, right? They can be helpful, but only to the extent that they are validated by God's Word. So the only valid, ultimate standard of belief is what does the Bible say. So we talked about that. Then we talked about how is it that people who value the authority of the Word of God all, you know, they have the same high view of Scripture. In other words, they're not liberal. They haven't denied the deity of Christ or the inerrancy of Scripture or the virgin birth or any of the things that the apostate pagan you know, Christian denominations have. Uh, but we all value the Word of God. How is it that we can still nevertheless come away with different interpretations of the same passage? And in every case, it comes down to your method, how you are approaching the text and your methodology uh, for setting it. So we use this illustration of how you can be looking at the same picture, but if you have a different perspective, it looks entirely different. It's a difference between... Yeah, it's a difference between... Well, this which one's good? This one or this one? Uh, that one's better. That one's better. Amen. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, we, we talked about how it's the same passage of Scripture, but depending on your perspective, you could come away with an incorrect interpretation. And that, again, goes back to why context is so important. So... Um, and then, uh, so that's where we left off. So I talked about how um, I love to collect uh, marquee signs that you see on uh, church signs. More than once I've stopped to take a picture. But this is one that I found that says, don't believe everything you think. And I think that's a good principle, right? Just because you think it. Remember, thoughts are come from somewhere, right? They don't come ex nihilo, out of nothing. They come typically from somebody we've heard speak, or a book we read, or a TV show we watched, or a movie we watched, or a talk show we heard, or a conversation we had. And so this is why it's important to recognize why you believe what you believe. Anybody remember what the fancy term for that is that we talked about last time? Why you believe what you believe? What's that scientific term or study called? Epistemology. Epistemology, the study of why you believe what you believe. Okay, so what is your epistemology? What is the basis for your beliefs? And um, you need to recognize that we believe some things that, if we're intellectually honest, are inherently inconsistent. Um, you know, for example, um, well, let's see. Well, this is a little bit of a complex one, but it, it it's the only one that comes to my mind at the moment. But when it comes to the biblical doctrine of the sanctity of life, there are many people that are pro-abortion and anti-capital punishment. Now that might sound from the world's wisdom consistent, right? But it's not because it's precisely because of the biblical view of the sanctity of life that God instituted capital punishment, an eye for an eye, because that's how valuable life is. When you take a life, an innocent life, uh, made in the image of God, God says, you know, that, that's, a cap, that's worthy of capital punishment. Um, and similarly, life begins at conception, and any, there are no justifications or reason for abortion because it's an innocent life, right? Uh, which is why, by the way, I'm so uh, passionate above all other reasons, and there are literally hundreds of reasons why any person should not consider the vaccine. But above all else, it's the, you know, using dead baby corpse parts in the vaccines. And that is not a myth. Don't listen to the fake news that you hear on TV. I, can sh I did in our uh, videos, showed you the CDC's own website. We know not only that, that they do include them, we know what gender the baby was, what year they were aborted, how far along they were, and what parts of the corpse they took to and put in the vaccine. So uh, this is not a fact in dispute, but rather than 
deal with it, most uh, people say, oh, that's just a conspiracy theory, which is just an answer that people give when they don't have a legitimate uh, argument. So to me, that's based on my biblical understanding of the sanctity of life, right? Um, so, you know, we, we need to be honest enough to, to recognize when one of our beliefs contradicts another at the principle level that either one's right and one's wrong, or perhaps they're both wrong, and we need to reject them both and get back to the Word. But you cannot hold two opposing truths um, at the same time. Um, I got an email recently uh, with this tagline in the signature area. You know how some people like to put little clever uh, quotes? I get a lot of quotes from that, by the way. I have a running list of literally hundreds of quotes um, that I, that I want to keep up with. And so that when I'm writing, I can go back, skim through and say, oh, this is a good one. I think I'll use that. But so I keep a list and that, and a lot of them come from people's taglines in their email. But this one said, happiness is what you think, what you say, and what you do. I'm sorry. Happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. And that's a Gandhi quote. Well, that's not true. <laughs> happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony with the word of God not with each other. See the difference? One says, I'm the ultimate standard. The other says, God is the ultimate standard. So true happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony with God's Word. Okay. Uh, so we said the Bible then is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. The Bible is God's self-revelation to mankind. Uh, I've said many times the Bible is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. Okay? Uh, God uh, obviously put on human flesh in the person of the eternal Son of God who came to earth, born of a virgin, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, and was God incarnate. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But God the Father uh, is not confined to time, space, and matter and cannot, is not something that we can go physically touch. So how do we know God? Well, the Bible tells us we know God through general revelation and through special revelation. General revelation is the heavens, creation, conscience, providence, those kinds of things. Romans 1 makes it very clear that nobody can claim they didn't know there was a God because God has revealed Himself to everyone. Every human being knows there's a God. In fact, the psalmist said only a fool would say there's no God. You know, a fool says in his heart there is no God. And that doesn't mean he doesn't know there's a God. He's just consciously expressing the thought of his heart that there's no God. But he knows that there is a God. And so uh, the other way God reveals himself is through special revelation, which is through his revealed word. So for a period of 1,500 years, using the pen of 40 different human authors in three different languages on three different continents, God spoke from heaven to earth and unveiled himself to us so that everything we need for life and godliness is now right here. This is it. So we, we must run every belief that we have through the grid of Scripture and make sure it's not violating a principle. Now, obviously, every day we, we recognize uh, truth that is uh, not verbatim listed in God's Word, Right? Like, that this shirt is navy. I can't cite chapter and verse in God's Word. right? But we understand that there's a correspondence theory of truth, that statements must correspond to reality, as God's Word teaches, and therefore, you know, you, you cannot claim that this shirt is green, right? Um, and uh, so, even though it might not explicitly spell out, for example, what's 360 divided by 12, you know, there's no such verse that says, you know, but that's a uh, matter of empirical truth, objective scientific fact, and, um, you know, we, can, we understand the Bible uh, vouches for that. So that being the case, that the Bible is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices, uh, then as one of my uh, professors and mentors who's with the Lord said very eloquently, there really is no higher activity in which the mind may be engaged than the pursuit of the knowledge of God. Really, our whole lives are about wanting to know God better because we don't have the mind of God. We can't understand everything. As we said, his, his, He's got this uh, mysterious element to Him. Um, and so, uh, you know, we want to do our best here on this sin-stricken world with corrupt minds to try to understand it. 
Well, how do we do that? Do we do it subjectively? Do we do it like some mystical religions have claimed through some special private, you know, revelation that, you know, God reveals to you, like uh, how Islam came about 600 years after Christ, or when some angel allegedly said, here, take a note, you know, is that how we, is that how we get truth? Uh, go back to, uh, I don't have it on the screen, but look at Second Peter chapter uh Actually, let's see here. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20. And I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Knowing this verse, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So truth is not a matter of somebody just subjectively declaring, oh, here's what I think. There's no private truth. God is the source of truth. Men, Holy men of God spoke, and this is talking about the Old Testament prophets here, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this whole topic that we're calling how to read and understand the Bible is called in formal academic circles hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. I know many of you have heard that term, and, uh, but it's, if you look it up in a dictionary, if you look it up in Webster's, it's the science of interpretation, especially of the Scriptures. So it's how do we study the Word of God, you know? Um, so... What we need to understand is that not all Bible study methods, or you might say methodologies, are created equal. So I was talking with someone before we started tonight about study Bibles. That's the reason that if you look at the Charles Ryrie study Bible and compare it to the John MacArthur study Bible and compare it to the uh, Nelson study Bible, now called the New King James study Bible, and compare it to the NIV study Bible and compare it to the Benny Hinn study Bible, I mean, you're going to have quite a completely different perspective, right? Uh, and that's because each one of those that I just mentioned comes at the Scriptures from a different perspective. I didn't mention it, but for example, the ESV study Bible is, is completely written by Calvinists that are absolutely impassioned to prevent, present a Calvinistic slant to the entire Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. So much so that a lot of people have taken to calling it the elect study Bible. <laughs> you know, that's what they call it. Um, and, 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 and that's fine. I mean, they're upfront about it. Read the front matter. By the way, whenever you read a, a study Bible, read the front matter. In fact, always read the front matter, you know. I mean, all of my books, I take time to write a preface, and I'm assuming that by reading the preface, it's setting the stage for what I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write. And so like for my book, Great Last Day's Deception, it came out almost 10 years ago now. Everyone would buy that book and jump straight to chapter 8 where I list the top 10 lies that people believe. And, 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 I'm, and then I, they'd email me with, you know, nasty remarks. How dare you criticize Fox News, you know, whatever. And uh, I'd say, did you read the first seven chapters? Well, no. Okay, well, let's read the book and then let's have a conversation. You don't have to agree with me, but I'm not going to have a conversation when you don't, didn't let me make the whole case, right? So always read the front matter, uh, but especially when it comes to study Bibles, because it's going to tell you important things like, you know, who was on the editorial committee, Right? And where they went to seminary and what their theological framework was or is, if they're still living. Uh, and, you know, what their purpose is and so forth. So people, uh, often uh, Christians, well-intentioned though we may be, will handle the notes in study Bibles or commentaries the same way we just did that verse that we talked about. Kind of, so-and-so says this, so-and-so says this, and they don't have any idea about the inherent you know, real contradiction between the two schools of thought. I remember years ago I was uh, called into uh, a Christian high school where I'd spoken in chapel and the headmaster 
uh, called me into her office and said, hey, I want to get your opinion. You know, here's the here are the books that we have chosen for our 10th grade theology class. And man, I think they're great. What do you think? Well, she had John Piper's something, Holiness of God or whatever, and Charles Ryrie's Basic Theology. And she said, what do you think? And I said, well, let me put it this way. If this was your political science class for 10th graders, it'd be like having a book by Newt Gingrich and Barney Frank. <laughs> See my point? And she was shocked, and I said, yeah. I said, you know, Piper is a 12-point Calvinist. He's a historic premillennialist. He's coming from a perspective that dead people can't be, you know, that unsaved people can't believe the gospel. They have no choice in the matter. They're forced to believe. And if they're not elect, they couldn't believe it if they wanted to. And if they're elect, they couldn't reject the gospel if they wanted to. Ryrie, on the other hand, is a traditional dispensationalist coming from a grace perspective that says, whosoever will may come. You know, it's a bona fide offer. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me, but not all men will be saved, right? Which, by the way, that one verse where Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me, is a real problem for Calvinists. Because... Uh, clearly not everybody is saved, but clearly Jesus said, I'm drawing all men. So that either means God and Christ failed at what they wanted, um, or mankind has the free will to reject God's offer of salvation. Second Peter 3.9, same thing. God is not willing that any should perish. Well, isn't God sovereign, fully in control, omnipotent, nothing can contravene His power? If God's not willing that any perish, why do some people go to hell? Because you can reject the gospel. You can reject the free gift of eternal life. A gift freely offered must be freely received. And if it's forced upon you, it's not free at all. So anyway, I, I don't think I got through to this particular uh, teacher or uh, principal uh, because I think they continued to use the books. And I just thought, how confused are these poor young Christian students going to be? Right? So always read the front matter. Read the back. Read who's endorsing it, you know. Uh, those are very important things. Am I right? Anne, Anne's in the publishing industry, and uh, she's saying, in, even though I can't hear you, she's saying amen inside. At least I'm convincing myself of that. Three, you, have, you have to say it three times. That's right. All right, so that's why uh, hermeneutics is important. That's why we're going to spend so much time over the next few weeks and months talking about how to study the Bible, uh, because there is a right way and there's a wrong way. There's only one right way, and it's the, the normal way that language and uh, books and words on a page are intended to be uh, understood. Yeah? Do you have any examples of other instances where the term hermeneutics is used other than Scripture? Because it's about the science of interpretation. I've always, so the question is, based on this definition, which is a, a dictionary definition, uh, are there other places where hermeneutics is used when it doesn't refer to Scripture? Not that I know of. Uh, I think every context I've heard it in is in, in, in the context of Scripture. And again, not to get too down into the weeds, um, but in, in academic circles, you know, it's a given that there are a wide variety of hermeneutical methods. You know, there's the redemptive movement hermeneutic, the reader response hermeneutic, the uh, allegorical hermeneutic, the census plenior hermeneutic. There's all these different ways of studying uh, Scripture. But we believe that the only proper way is what's called the literal grammatical historical, or LGH, which is to say that words are intended to be understood and interpreted in their plain, normal sense. It's the only way language works. If language doesn't work that way, then nobody could ever communicate. If, the, if, if there's not a correspondence between what I'm saying and what I mean, then it, you know, there's, you can't, it's impossible to communicate, right? So words have to have meaning. They have to have meaning in context. Um, and you know, that does not preclude, by the way, as we're going to talk a lot about, we've, I've got a couple of lessons on figures of speech, which I think you'll find fascinating. I know I did, to see how often figures of speech appear in Scripture. And it's not unique to Scripture. They appear in any language. It's a very normal way of communicating. But figures of speech does not mean you can't take the, 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 uh, what I'm saying literally or what, what is being written or said literally, right? So the example I've used, I know I've used it in here before, but I want to expound on it a little bit more to talk about the importance of context. So if I were to say, 
I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Again, think of you know Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 or whatever the verses were on the screen. So if all you had was that, you probably would assume that by saying I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, uh, that I mean what? That I'm very hungry, right? I'm pretty hungry. It's a, I'm not literally talking about eating a horse. I'm just saying, boy, I am famished. You know, I really could, could eat. I'm not hungry because Fred bought me a very big, greasy, juicy hamburger for lunch, uh, which uh, I feel still guilty about eating. But uh, no, it was really good. Um, it just wasn't on my diet, but I, I'm allowed to splurge every now and then. But let me give you an illustration of the importance of context, all right? So clearly people use that particular, it's, it's a unique English metaphor of I'm so hungry I could eat a horse. Um, but it's a figure of speech meaning, boy, I'm really hungry. But suppose... Um, Suppose it's Christmas time, and suppose um, Wendy and our kids, when they were younger, are in the kitchen making Christmas cookies, and they've got the cookie cutters that are in the shapes of animals, and then and I get home from work, and I walk into the kitchen, and they've got hippos and giraffes and horses and whatever, and, uh, and they say, Dad, look at our Christmas cookies. We just iced them. And I say, Oh, those look wonderful. Man. I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, and I pick up a horse, right? Completely different meaning, right? I'm not necessarily intending to communicate anything about how famished I am. I'm, phys- I'm actually talking about a sugar cookie cut out in the shape of a horse. So context, right? And that's an important principle for all of communication, not just for hermeneutics, not just for how to read and understand the Bible. It's a helpful reminder that when we hear things, and we're, we, we are prone to make a snap judgment, get the context. Get the context. Uh, part of the, pro, the satanic propaganda machine that loves to manipulate minds is entirely built upon the sound bite methodology. And we've seen it. We've all seen it. We've seen little clips of a police officer's camera you know, as he's clubbing somebody. And everybody quickly has an opinion, and the politicians come out, this is abhorrent, and that officer ought to be killed, and they're going to be hung out and dry, or whatever. And then uh, over the next 24 to 48 hours, you find that someone had a cell phone, and they captured the whole thing, and you see that guy that just got clubbed with the billy club had a 9 millimeter and was smashing the cop with it and about to shoot him, and he was defending himself, right? So context is critical. And we need to remember not to make snap judgments and not to read Scripture without understanding what God was intended to communicate uh, as a whole. Make sense? So uh, let's go to uh, this passage, uh, which is an important foundational passage for what we're talking about, about how to read and understand the Bible. Paul, in his last letter to Timothy, uh, said in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now the old King James, which is the way I memorized this, said, study to show thyself approved unto God. Actually, study to shew thyself approved unto God. I don't know what S-H-E-W means, but apparently it means show. But study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so this is kind of a biblical principle of how important it is to correctly handle. In fact, some modern English translations translate that word that's rightly dividing as one word in Greek as correctly handles. So uh, we need to correctly handle the word of truth. But that word that's translated rightly dividing is a one Greek word, and it's only used one time in the entire New Testament right here, and it's the word orthotomeo. Orthotomeo, it means to cut in a straight line or to guide along a straight path. Now let's think about that. Uh, Go back to this passage, rightly dividing, cutting straight the Word of God, guiding along a straight path, the Word of truth. Um, So because this is the only time this word is used in the New Testament, it's All we can really know is a wooden literal meaning of it. But if we see how it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it kind of helps us understand a little bit more about uh, the nuance uh, behind it. It's used um, twice 
in the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, uh, parts of it, a small portion in Aramaic during the Babylonian exile. But uh, around 285 B.C., they translated it, the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, into Greek. And that uh, document is called what? The Septuagint. Do you agree or should you guys like arm wrestle? You, you agree? Okay. Yeah, the Septuagint. Sometimes you'll see it uh, abbreviated LXX, the Roman numeral 70, because 70 scholars worked on this translation. And so... Uh, and when we look at a couple of Old Testament passages, one of them is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Many of you probably know this. This was my father-in-law's favorite passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Some modern English translations actually say He shall make your paths straight, right? Well, when they translated this verse into Greek, they used orthotomeo. That gives you an idea, right? And then the similar one in Proverbs 11, the righteousness of the blameless will direct his way aright. But the wicked, this is contrasting parallelism, the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. So the idea of these two passages, Proverbs 3 and Proverbs 11, is that following God's direction, God's path in your life, will cut a straight path in the right direction across you know, life and whatever life may be uh, cross, you know, bringing your way. It's going to create a smooth, clear path that otherwise might be thorny and rocky and uh, undiscerning. It's like trying to walk through uh, the, the forest. You know, if you've ever taken walks through the national forest or state forest and you decide, oh, I, this looks like a side path. I think I'll take this path. And you end up realizing before too long that it really wasn't a path. And suddenly it's hard to find the path. And so if you're smart, you turn around and go right back to the main path, uh, but if you're not, you could end up getting lost. Um, so it's the idea here is that following God's will, God's principles, God's wisdom will help you uh, go directly to where He wants you to go without stumbling, without problems, and so forth. So if we go back to the New Testament, 2 Timothy 2.5, that's what he's talking about here, that when we, when we study the Word of God, we are to study it correctly by you know, guiding, letting the Word guide us along a straight path, like a road that goes straight to its goal, without being turned aside to speculation, reading between the lines, this goosebump method, you know, methodology that many people uh, employ, or allegorical interpretations. Let the Word of God speak plainly, in its straight, normal, grammatical, literal sense. Don't try to look between the lines. Don't try to discern, well, what does this really mean? Well, it means what it says. Uh, so let the words guide you straight to where you belong. By the way, orthotomeo, again, this word rightly dividing here, is where we get the English word orthodontia, right? And, uh, you know, it's, it's a surgical word. Um, uh, in other words, what, what your orthodontist is doing is making your teeth straight, right? I mean, you would not want to go to an orthodontist who could not cut straight, so to speak, who could not create straight teeth. I mean, why would you do that? And why would people sit under the teaching of pastors and Bible teachers that aren't cutting a straight path using the nouns, the subjects, the verbs, and exactly what God's Word says? Right? And we have a lesson from history here that... The notion of correctly, correctly handling the Word of God and helping people to understand its meaning goes all the way back to Old Testament times in, uh, in Israel. So I mentioned this not too long ago on our, uh, my Tuesday appearances on the Christian Underground News Network. I'm a regular Tuesday guest on that show, and they wanted to talk about common mistakes. And so if you listen to that, this will sound familiar. But if you go to the Old Testament, I don't have this on the screen, but look at Nehemiah. Chapter 8, Nehemiah, chapter 8. So Nehemiah, again, writing after the exile, one of the last books in the New Testament, roughly 445 B.C. And, of course, it's all about rebuilding the walls around the destroyed city of Jerusalem. And you come to chapter 8, and let's pick it up in verse, well, in verse 1. Now all the people gathered together as one man.
stand in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. That was their Torah, their Bible at that time, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. So next time you think your preacher goes long, just remember Nehemiah 8, 3. Uh, before the men and women and those who could understand, notice, you know, the, the, notice the frequent references to understanding, right? He wasn't concerned with the young infants or the young children who still were not able to understand, you know, like my granddaughter, you know, she's two. I'm not worried about her being able to understand basic principles because she's still learning to speak, you know. Um, uh, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra, Ezra, verse 4, So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood. This is the oldest reference that we have to a pulpit, what became common, a place where pastors would stand to preach, um, which they had made for that purpose. And beside him and at his right hand stood a bunch of people who we don't need to worry about pronouncing their names. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, not because he was better than them or, uh, you know, more intelligent. It was a pragmatic thing. By standing up, you know, people could hear him and see him better. Um, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Verse 5, many churches throughout church history. Again, this is Old Testament truth, way before the church was established. Many churches have a tradition of standing for the reading of the Word of God. I, my home church when the pastor would get up uh, where I was cut my teeth, you know, from high school on, I was in this church. He's the one that licensed me to the ministry, Brother Billy J. Crosby. And he would get up every uh, Sunday and he would say, you know, he had, he had this statement that he would make every Sunday about, I believe the Bible is the Word of God and so forth and so on. But then he would say, now please stand with me and take your Bibles and turn to and we would read it. This was way before technology and PowerPoints and screens and everybody had a Bible and you'd just read it, right? But we stood. Not saying that's you know, prescriptive, this isn't a command, this is just a description of what happened, so it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Uh, one of the rules of hermeneutics, you know, a lot of times people make principles out of simple descriptions. But certainly not a bad idea, right? It shows honor and respect for God's Word, uh, but not a command. So anyway, they stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen. So they didn't say it three times, they should have only... But evidently this was a Baptist church because they hollered out, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. So maybe it was a charismatic church, I don't know. But anyway, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And I'll skip to verse 8, and I've got this on the screen. Um, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and watch this, they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. That right there is the quintessential example of biblical expository teaching or preaching. You read from the Word of God and you help explain what it means so that everybody can understand it and then they can change their lives with what it says, right? And, you know, as I've uh, traversed, uh, you know, three decades now of ministry, uh, especially since we started Not By Works 22 years ago, I've been in a lot of different churches, and I've, I've seen some churches that are all about sort of what I call prideful intellectualism. They, you know, the pastor preaches from the Greek text, they're parsing Greek verbs on the overhead projector, and everybody there is all, I know all this, they can name the 12 tribes of Israel, they can name the, all the judges and what years they served, they can name the 12 disciples, they can name every one of the 10 areas of systematic theology, and they're puffed up with all this knowledge, but they're not really gracious and kind and helpful, not particularly concerned about souls of others. And then I've seen on the far other end of the continuum, churches that really love Jesus. They have a real heart for others. They want to see people come to faith and know the Lord. They do a lot of evangelistic enterprises and uh, events and things to, to share the gospel. But they don't really know how to connect the dots and understand the, the deeper truths of Scripture. And so I think the goal is to, to, to both understand it 
but then put it to use and live it out and be gracious and help people uh, understand it. And certainly that's our goal at, uh, at Plum Creek Chapel. And we have a long history of being committed to the teaching of God's Word. And we're, you know, hope to continue that till Jesus comes, you know. So, um, so just a couple of verses to kind of close out with, and we'll see if you have any questions. Um, Psalm 1, um, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But what? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. Um, Back in the days when the children of Israel were on the banks of the Jordan, ready to go in and, uh, to Canaan, uh, what do we read in Joshua? This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. I mean, notice that part of it, so that you can do it. It's not just memorizing it and knowing it. It's knowing it and then acting on it. Um, remember what James said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because it's the doers that will be blessed. I think there are a lot of biblically brilliant but morally bankrupt people in this world. They know the Bible. They just don't live it out. They've got a quenched spirit and a, a hard heart and so forth. Because then you will make your way, he will make your way prosperous. And then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. In other words, following God's word generally Leads to good things. And then, of course, Hebrews 4.12, The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, a lot of good Bible students have pointed out that in the context here, the Word of God is not just the written Word of God, but the living incarnate Word of God. But as I showed a few weeks ago, or maybe been longer than now in a Sunday sermon, I don't remember what the sermon was about, but I remember uh, talking about the distinction between the two living revelations of God, the living incarnate Word and the living written Word, and the comparisons between the two. Uh, the living incarnate Word is Jesus Christ, the living written Word is the Bible. Uh, when, we come, when it comes to Jesus Christ, we, he had human parents with the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary so that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, not uh, Joseph. And the result is a sinless Savior. When it comes to living written word, the Bible, you've got human authors. I mentioned 40 different human authors with the Holy Spirit superintending, carrying them along. And the result is a uh, word of God or scripture that is without error. And so both of them have this divine element here. And the point of this is to show that it is absolutely impossible to have a relationship with the living incarnate Word, Jesus, if you reject the living written Word. Because this is the Word of God. This is how we know. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. Right? So we'll stop there for now, and, I, and we'll pick up next week. Um, next week I'm going to get into the high-level... I'll just kind of show you here five steps in the Bible study process, which is foundational to all of my teaching on hermeneutics. And I've taught this for years and years and years in, the, in Bible colleges and seminaries. And we'll come back to it again and again. But we're, that, this is the beginnings of the process. And we'll talk about the five steps. I talked about this, by the way, uh, I think it was this summer, early on in summer, when we were talking about eternal security. And I don't know what made me do it, but in our series that lasted seven or eight weeks on eternal security, I ended up digressing at one point and taking a few minutes to talk about this. So some of you have seen this before, but there are five broadly speaking steps in the Bible study process, and then we're going to drill down in the weeks to come on some methodologies and principles that will help you avoid common mistakes. So any questions before we close out for tonight? Comments, questions? Yeah. question is, when Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth, where do I think he was coming from? So you're asking me to get inside the mind of Pilate. Yeah, the context, yeah. Well, so clearly uh, uh, Pilate was an unbeliever who didn't understand God's revealed truth about the coming Messiah and the, uh, you know, the, the nature and qualifications of the king. He, you know, he was kind of part of the Roman Jewish pagan system that had sort of supplanted God's ideal. And so uh, at the very least, we can say with certainty that he was questioning Jesus 
uh, declaration to be the Son of God, the Son of Man, and the Messiah. Um, and, uh, you know, remember Jesus said, you know, to told asked the disciples just before all this went down that final week, who do men say that I am? And he said, uh, Peter eventually got it right and said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so, I, you know, I, it's hard to know beyond that other than he was... Um, I don't. I think it would be an overstatement to say that he was questioning the existence of truth, and a lot of times people kind of play off of that, especially in this postmodern age where truth is under attack. The, the existence of it. I mean, perhaps I, I don't really know, but for sure he was questioning Jesus' view of the truth, and Jesus had claimed in the upper room, which didn't ha- hadn't ha- well actually it had happened by that point uh, that he was the truth whether Pilate knew that or not, but Jesus had certainly claimed that previously as well. So that's kind of the, my best non-answer answer. <laughs> Anybody else? Awesome. Well, let's pray and we'll uh, wrap up. Father, thank you for our time together tonight and thank you for your precious word. You've given us such great and precious promises. Lord, help us to, through this uh, series, help all of us, myself included, to fall in love all over again with your word and uh, to, to, to desire it, to have a passion for it, and to be able to, uh, to not be able to go even a single day without studying your word. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.